Father, from time to time, David would find himself in a literal cave, hiding out from Saul and his men. And there are actually uh, several psalms that uh, the inscription begins with the cave. They're cave psalms because David was trapped. There was no way out unless you made a way. And one of those cave psalms is Psalm 57. And David said in that cave, he said, I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. We're not always in the cave, but at times we are. We're in the cave when we feel trapped. We're in the cave when there's no exit. We're in the cave when all of our options are gone. But when we're in that cave, and this is what David remembered, we are not alone. We may be outnumbered, but we're not alone. I would pray tonight for the guys, and inevitably there are some. There are some men here tonight. And you wouldn't know it from just uh, shaking hands with them as we just did, or just... Uh, making a greeting or introducing ourselves. You wouldn't know it, but there are some guys maybe around within a few rows who are in the cave. They're trapped. They're out of options. They're not sure how they're going to navigate. This is where we call to you. I will cry. That's a cry of desperation. I will cry to God most high. There are people in the world who are high. There are people who have power. There are decision makers, and they seem to have decision-making power over us. Saul had that over David. They are high, but you are most high. So we get our eyes off of people, and we put our eyes on you. You control all people. You control all nations. You control every human heart. I will cry to God most high who accomplishes all things for me. We run out of options. You are our option. It's amazing for some of us we've made it this far in life. It's amazing we were here. But you have a work for us to do, and the work hasn't been accomplished fully yet. Psalm 68 says, To the Lord belongs escapes from death. Some of us should have been dead. Some of us, maybe in here, were pronounced dead, for all I know. Some of us were in an ambulance, and they didn't think we were going to make it to the hospital, or the surgeon wasn't sure, or whatever it is. But Lord, you accomplish all things for us. We're immortal until our work is done, and when our work is done, we're promoted to be with you. Nothing can touch us. So I pray tonight for those that are in a cave of circumstances, a, a cave of health issues, a cave of a stormy marriage, whatever, whatever it might be, and it could be numerous things. We look to you. We cry to you who accomplishes all things. He will sin from heaven and save me. You saved us from our sin at a point in our lives when we called upon the name of Jesus. We were given a new heart. When you regenerated us, we were born again. But you continue to save us. You continue to save us from circumstances. You continue to save us from decisions, bad decisions that we have made. And there are consequences. But, but you do not deal with us according to our sin. You do not reward us according to our iniquities. What a gracious God, what a gracious Savior you are. We're sinners. We fall short. We make dumb moves. 
But when we fess up, you're there. And we're not finished because you have a plan. When we're overwhelmed, you knew our paths. We thank you for being the all-powerful God, for being the all-wise God. But we also thank you for being the gracious God. We need grace. We need forgiveness. We need mercy. And it will never stop coming. We are blessed men because of Christ. In his great name we pray. Amen. We're working our way through Hebrews 11. If you're a first-time guy, let me bring you up to speed, and this will be a little review for the guys that have been here. Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. Every sport has a Hall of Fame. Um, baseball, Cooperstown, New York, uh, football, Canton, Ohio, basketball, Springfield, Mass. I'm sure there's a Rugby Hall of Fame. I'm sure there's a Water Skiing Hall of Fame. There, everybody's got a Hall of Fame. God's Hall of Fame... God's Hall of Fame is Hebrews chapter 11. We're not doing the whole book of Hebrews, uh, but we're doing Hebrews 11 because it's a central chapter um, about a central issue in the Christian life. If, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and you phone in on verse... Give me a second. Six. There's a remarkable statement that's made here, and here's the statement. It says this. It says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There, there is a lot of misconception about what pleases God. What is it that pleases God? Uh, the average person, the average the average American who has been in church or has some kind of inoculation to Christianity, whatever it might be. Maybe uh, you were in church, maybe you were confirmed at a certain age or baptized in an infant, or you would go occasionally Christmas and Easter or whatever. The average Christian, the average American who goes to church now and then, they think what pleases God is good works. If you get enough good works um, in your ledger, in your balance sheet, when you die, God takes the good works and then he takes the bad works and hopefully the good works come out and you got more good works than you do bad works. Um, that's not going to work for you. It's not going to work for anybody because we're all sinners. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God requires, God doesn't grade on the curve. Some uh, professors grade on the curve. I understand now that uh, uh, things have changed since I was in college. Now most professors are expected to give A's. Have you read anything about this? It's called grade inflation. And you can read about it. There are articles about it. Most students in college expect A's. Most students in Ivy, that make the Ivy League universities, they expect A's. And a professor has to have a pretty darn good reason for not giving out an A. In fact, things are, things are topsy-turvy now. In fact, they've got websites where professors are ranked by the students. Did you know that? You, you do know about it. Yeah. Don't do that with me. I'm just, just kidding. Uh, Everything's just topsy-turvy. But uh, there, there is a tremendous uh, amount of expectation. There is an expectation uh, that I deserve an A. There is an a Have you noticed how many commercials will talk about, you know, selling a product or uh, leasing a car that will enable you to get what you deserve? Well, you know, you want to start talking about what we deserve. You're talking justice. God requires, here's what God requires. God doesn't grade on the curve. God requires 100% perfection. 
So you can take your good works and add them up with your bad works. And by the way, whatever you think is good, you're still going to be outweighed by the bad because we sin and we don't even know we're sinning. There are sins of, uh, technically you can have sins of omission and commission. There are sins we commit. There are things we do and we know we're doing them. But there are things that we, that we fail to do that we should do and half the time we don't even care. You see, God requires 100% perfection. Christ is perfection. And, as, and listen, I never get tired of saying this. This is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ. The good news is that none of us, none of us have what it takes to be forgiven. None of us have the good works. Most people think, what does it take to please God? It takes good works. That's not right. It takes 100% perfection. So what Jesus did, here's what Jesus did. Jesus, who was God, Jesus came to earth, was born of a virgin. You say, that's impossible. Well, not if he's God, it's not impossible. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross. When he went to that cross, he went to the cross as a substitute for me, as a substitute for you. And he who was perfect, what he did was he gave his life the wrath of God that forensically and legally is poured out on sin breakers, which should have come to me, was not put on me, was not put on you, it was put on Christ. And Christ died for our sins, he died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. It, it's, that's the gospel, it's the good news. I was reading, I'm reading another biography on Martin Luther, and Martin Luther, you know, there are very few men who have changed the course of history. Martin Luther was one of those men. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He was trying to find peace with God. He was diligent. In fact, he, he died at a fairly early age, and he had a lot of infirmities later in life, and he felt like the attempts that he made in order to do penance and, and do good works so that God could, could forgive him, took an incredible toll on his body. He would fast and fast for days and weeks at a time. It just, just incredible. Why was he doing that? He was trying to atone for his sin. He was trying to pay for his sin. Mary and I watched some crazy movie the other night, and it was very, we don't usually watch this stuff, but it was on Masterpiece, and it was about some cult, and it was interesting because there was a weird cult going on, and then they did a little more research, and they found out this, this cult were made, it was made up of evangelical Christians who were pro-life. Oh, God help us. <laughs> and what they were doing, they were burning churches, but the person who would burn the church would go in there and would burn themselves in the church. Come on. Because they were atoning for their sins. That's not what evangelical Christians believe. That's what people who don't know anything about it, think. That's their perception. We don't atone for our sins. Jesus atoned for our sins. He paid the sin for us. That's the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world. We're in Hebrews 11, but if you look at Hebrews 10, now here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Know this. We're all sinners. Know this. We're all messed up. Know this, we've all missed the mark. Just know it. You know it and I know it. If we're honest with ourselves. Uh, verse 11 of Hebrews 10. Every priest daily stands ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The sins, uh, the, the sacrifices they did in the Old Testament. Uh, those, those particular sacrifices, they didn't have the ability to take away sins. But they were a type, they were a picture pointing to the one who would come and take away sin. And the Old Testament believers were looking ahead to Christ who would come one day the Messiah would come. Um, we look back to what he did on the cross, but Christianity is about the cross. Christianity is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is of first importance. That's the gospel. It's the good news. But you had all this stuff in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, meaning Jesus, 
having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sit down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. He's coming back one day. Everything's going to be set right. So you don't need to get too concerned in the interim. It's all under control. It looks out of control, but it's under control. He's got a plan for the ages. He's got a plan for the election that's coming up. And the polls say this. And, you know, hey, eat a cheeseburger. (laughs) Or a vegan burger or something. Just relax, man. Because God has a plan for the ages. He, 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 He sets up rulers. He puts them down. He's navigating the world, the whole world, the Middle East. He runs it. He owns it. He created it. There's a plan. Jesus is coming back. The government will rest upon Israel. It's, it's, it's all, it's okay. Everything's fine. Okay, now watch this. Verse 17, he then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, watch this, I will remember no more. He is such a great Savior that He not only forgives our sin by His own blood, but that He forgets our sin. Is that not amazing? Uh, it, it, it is amazing because you get down to verse 22. He says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How do you get a clear conscience? You get a clear conscience by understanding. You, the more you understand what Jesus did on the cross for you, the more you're going to have a clear conscience. Jesus paid it. You know that great hymn, Jesus paid it 90%? It's not what it says. The hymn says Jesus paid it. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's, it's amazing news. Um, and that's why we said last week, and I'll continue to repeat some of this, Hebrews 11, here's a profound statement. Hebrews 11 is set between Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12. <laughs> Write that down. You don't want to forget that. Look at Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, here's really, in my opinion, the focus of the whole book of Hebrews. You, we're going to look at Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at Three different individuals tonight who walk by faith, or two, of, two out of the three did, because without faith it's impossible to please God. And there's going to be other people in the hall of faith. But then you get to Romans 12, and it says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, well, those are the people that are listed in Hebrews 11 that have gone on to be with the Lord. Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. They've already run their race. They're with the Lord. We're running the race now. They set their eyes on the coming Jesus. We set our eyes on the Jesus who has come, died, and is coming back. Uh, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Watch this. Fixing our eyes on our favorite politician. That's not what it says. Fixing our eyes on the guy who's going to turn everything around. Well, whoever you think that guy is, he isn't it. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. He might look good on camera, but he didn't have it. I don't care who the sucker is. I don't care what party he's in. He's a puppet. He's a puppet. Sorry. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. I'm not saying he's not a free moral agent. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying ultimately God runs him. God runs everything. And there's one Messiah, and his name is Jesus. And he's our hope. Hebrews 12.2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, Watch this. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because Jesus despised the shame of going to the cross for us, he delivers us from sin, and he delivers us from shame. And if I have a title for this semester in Hebrews 11, I'm calling it From Shame to Fame. Because all these people in Hebrews 11 were sinners like you and like me, 
They all had things in their closet they were ashamed of. They didn't want anybody to find out about. They, they would have turned 14 colors of red. They were so embarrassed. I can't believe I did that. Yeah, but I did it. I wish I could go back and undo it. Yeah, but you can't. But Jesus paid it all. And he took our sin. He took our shame. And he's the Savior, and that's the greatest news in all the world. And he not only forgives our sin when we call upon the name of the Lord, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You don't get eternal life at the end of life if you've lived a good life. You get eternal life the moment you call upon the name of Christ and receive him into your life. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say shall get everlasting life. It says has it. Isn't that amazing? When, when, when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. When, when Christ comes in and invades our hearts and our lives, when he comes in, and the Spirit blows where it will. You never know when he's going to work in somebody's life. You never know. You never know. There's a guy in this room. And my wife knows his two daughters pretty well. And was recently talking with one of his daughters. And she was telling my wife how much respect she has for her father. And how she can talk to him. And how... She can go to him and she gets wisdom from him. But that's not where he was a few years back. But it's where he is now. Why? Because God invaded his life. You see? And, and every guy in here that knows Christ, he invaded your life. You didn't go after him, he came after you. Jesus said, you did not choose me. He said, well, I exercised faith. Yeah, you did. I know, I know you did. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. But that not of yourselves. Well, I exercised faith. Yeah, I know you did. But where'd you get the faith? Well, I didn't come from you. You didn't have faith. Read Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Dead guys don't exercise faith. Dead guys don't do anything. Do they? Well, that doesn't really mean dead. What do you think it means? It means dead. That's what it means. You're out in a country road, you know, taking a, a drive with your wife, and you go out there, and there's a nice little country church, and a lot of country churches have, have cemeteries right next to them. That's how they used to do it. You ever drive along Saturday afternoon, you know, nice weather, little country church, little cemetery, and you're driving along the two-little-lane highway, and there's a cemetery, and it's well taken care of, and suddenly you see a hand come out of the ground. And then you see another hand. And you're, you've pulled over now. You're watching this. And then you see an elbow and another elbow. And this guy pulls himself up out of the dirt. Gets out, pulls himself out. Sees you parked there. He goes, hey, can I get a ride into town? That's stupid. Why is that stupid? Here's why it's stupid. Dead men can't change their condition. Dead men can't will to become... You know, I'm sick and tired. I've been down here for 47 years. I'm sick and tired of this. I want to go to 7-Eleven and get a big gulp. <laughs> Dead men cannot change their conditions. So you go on and read in Ephesians 2, He made us alive. And if that bothers you, you don't understand this book. Sorry, but you don't. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. Hey, if you don't like that, don't get mad at me. Read the book. Read the book. It's what it says. So if you have faith, you were given the faith. If you know the Lord, he invaded your life. And you might have tried and tried and tried this and tried that. Oh, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to do this. You're doing nothing until the Spirit of God invades you and puts a new heart within you. And spiritual life is at work within you. None of us are doing anything. 
It's the work of Almighty God, and He gets the glory. Salvation is of the Lord. And when He saves, He saves to the uttermost. And then He saves us, so we're born again, and now, now that we're born, now what's the deal? Now, now it's all about growth. You got birth, and you got growth. Well, how is it that we then learn to grow? How is it that we go from infants, and how is it we go from immaturity to maturity? Ah, we're going to do it by walking by faith in the one who called us. The Christian life is a life of faith. The Christian life, in my opinion, consists of two things, primarily. I'm just summarizing. There are a bunch of other aspects. But you could boil it down to this, in my opinion. The Christian life is pretty much two things. Number one, it's fighting off fear, and it's walking by faith, trusting in God that he's going to come through. That's pretty much it. That's it. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith crowds out fear. In Matthew 6, they had all this fear. How, what are we going to eat? How are we going to take care of? How, how are we going to clothe ourselves? It's all about the essentials of life. And Jesus said to them, he said, for this reason, I say to you, don't worry about your life. And then he goes on, he says, you're worried about this and this and this. Oh, you of little faith. He doesn't say you have no faith. He says you have little faith. You know what little faith is? Little faith is little thinking about the greatness of God. I don't care where you are. I don't care what spot you're in. I don't care what your condition is. I don't care how deep the hole is. And you say, well, Steve, I dug the hole. We all dug the hole. He's a Savior. And he doesn't save us just once. He saves us our whole lives. That's in Ephesians 2.8. Before, we've talked about this. That participle in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. The way that participle is put together, it means for by grace you have been saved with continuing results. He never stops saving. That's a Savior. Is it not? Because we keep screwing up, right? Yeah, we do. And he keeps saving us. He's a great God. He's a great Savior. Is this not the best news there is in the world? Yeah, it is. But we're learning to walk by faith. The whole, the whole thing of Christian life is fighting off fear. I, I woke up this morning with a killer sinus headache. A killer. And at the same time I had this killer sinus headache, for some reason I had these different momentary fleeting thoughts of things I had done in my life, conversations, uh, actions that I wish I hadn't have done, all at the same time. So physically I was down, and when physically I'm down, spiritually I am vulnerable. And it didn't start out real well this morning. It wasn't a Joel Osteen morning. Let me just put it that way. Okay? I mean, I had a killer headache. And then I had all these spirit. I mean, suddenly, I mean, I got all these fiery darts coming at me. So what did I have to do? I took a couple of Excedrin and couple of this and a couple of that, and that's feeling pretty good. Now, I took a couple, you know, stuff for the sinus, and I just got back in bed. And then I started working through some scripture. I didn't have a lot of juice, but I just would camp on this or camp on that. And I remember, I, I think I gave you this quote from Robert Murray McChain a couple weeks ago, how we tend to get introspective. We start ripping ourselves apart because we've done so much wrong. And I just remember that quote from McChain. For every look you take at yourself, you, you take ten looks at Jesus. He, he has saved me from Yeah, did I miss up there? Did I miss up there? Yeah, but he's a great savior. This is called grace. It's grace. Psalm 57, 9. This I know that God is for me. A lot of you guys walked in here, and you really, really, you're thinking God's against you. But if you're in Christ, he's for you. Now, if you're fighting him, 
and you're resisting him and you're being defiant, he's going to work on you a little bit. He's going to discipline you. That's Hebrews 12, because you belong to him. If you've never been disciplined by God, Hebrews 12 12 says, uh, you probably don't know him. Because every son that is given to him, he disciplines. But he wants to train us, just like we train our little kids, you see. Well, this is the Christian life. We're walking by faith. Tonight, here's what I want to do. You got three individuals we're going to look at tonight who are mentioned in Hebrews 11. Two of them, two, there's three individuals in Hebrews 11. That we're gonna, there's three individuals. Two of them are mentioned as people of faith. One of them isn't. Now, there are two words that summarize Cain and Abel and Enoch. Uh, we're going to look at Abel and Cain, or Cain and Abel, first in Hebrews tonight. And under, I'm, going to give you two, I'm going to give you two words. The first one would be, would be heart. So the first illustration is the heart of faith, and that's Cain and Abel. The second one we're going to look at are the events of faith, and that would be Enoch. And, and what's going to happen is we go through and look at these different individuals, you're going to see your story uh, in each of these people. So let's back up and let's go to Hebrews 11 and let's go to verse 4. Because this is all about faith. By fa- and what is faith? Is it a blind leap in the dark? That's not faith. Faith is believing that God is, believing that God has spoken, believing that God has made a promise, and believing that God cannot lie and that God will fulfill His promise. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You might leave him. He won't leave you. You might screw up. You might go off the cliff. He's not leaving you. He's got all these promises in the Scripture. And by faith, we live off those promises. This isn't on us. It's on him. All right, now watch this. By faith, Abel offered to God. I'm in Hebrews 11.4. By faith... Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Now, who are Abel and Cain? They are the sons of Adam and Eve, who didn't exist. We talked about this last week. They did exist. They did exist. They, Adam and Eve were made by God. Uh, it, it, let me ask you, say, well, that's the, that's the early stuff in Genesis. Well, let me ask you something. If the, right out of the blocks... If Genesis is wrong on creation, why would you trust the Bible on anything else? If it's wrong right out of the first three chapters are wrong, why the heck would you believe anything else in the Bible? If God can't get it right in the first three chapters, in the introduction, why would you believe anything else in this book? That doesn't make any sense. Well, that's just, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, well, he's always doing unbelievable stuff. That's what he does. All the way through this book, you got unbelievable stuff, turning water into wine. Come on. Uh, John 9, the man blind from birth. And Jesus heals him. And they pull him up before the council. Well, tell us what happened. I already told you what happened. I like this guy. This guy was a tough guy in John 9. I already told you what happened. Well, we're not sure about this man. What do you mean you're not sure about him? Well, who are you to teach us? Hey, here's what I know, hot shot. I was blind and now I see. <laughs> and you can't see anything. <laughs> all the way through, he's being God. All the way through this book, he's being God. So he created Adam, he created Eve. They had uh, a son, they had uh, Cain, and they had Abel. Now, And it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. In other words, the sacrifice, he had two brothers. They both bring sacrifices. The story is found in Genesis chapter 4, if you want to flip back there. It's a real simple story. You got two brothers, they both bring sacrifices to the Lord. But it is clearly said by the Lord that he approved of the sacrifice of Abel, but he didn't approve of the sacrifice of Cain. 
And you can read all kinds of commentators, and they'll write discussions back and forth. Well, why didn't, well, you know, what was the difference between all the, let me tell you what the difference was. Let me tell you why the sacrifice of Abel was better than the sacrifice of Cain. It's because whenever there is a religious act and a sacrifice, it was the sacrifice of the Old Testament. They're bringing a sacrifice to the Lord. They brought different sacrifices. Why is this guy's sacrifice better than this guy's? Let me tell you why. Let's cut to the chase. Because God looks beyond the religious external act, and God always looks at the heart. God cuts through all the stuff. So on a Sunday morning, wherever, if you're at church here, there are several thousand people here on a Sunday morning taking communion. Or you go to church somewhere else, and maybe it's a small church, and there's 100 people, whatever it is. Let's say you're here on a Sunday morning, or 3,000 people taking communion. Everyone's taking communion, all right? You don't know everybody's heart. The only heart you know is your heart. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 11, when you take communion, let each man examine himself. Why? Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What is communion? In the night that he was betrayed, what did Jesus do? He took the bread. He said, this is my body, which was broken for you. The bread is a symbol. And then he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, there's no remission of sin. Jesus said, watch this, do this in remembrance of me. So, what is communion? Communion, when we take the bread and we take the cup, what should be going on in our hearts is that we are focusing and we are remembering what Jesus did on the cross. That's what it's about. It's, I mean, it's, it's simple, quite frankly. Now, you go to 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul said, and, and back then they would have the communion, but it would be involved with the feast, and there would be a lot of food, and there would be a lot of wine, and there was a lot of alcohol in the wine, and some of these suckers were getting hammered at the Lord's table. And Paul rebukes them and exhorts them. He says, you examine yourself before you do this. And some of you have perpetually sinned at the Lord's table. He said, and some of you are sick, and some of you have slept, which is a metaphor. Some of you have died. Some of them abused the Lord's table to such a degree that God took them. I read a quote to you a couple weeks ago from Thomas Watson. That God, God is all I. He's all I. He sees all things. He knows all things. He knows the heart. So you got 3,000 people taking communion. Do you know the hearts? Are, everybody's doing the same external act. But you don't know the heart. Oh, God knows the heart. It's always, Christianity, hey guys, Christianity is always about the heart. Walking by faith is always the heart. You know why Martin Luther had such a hard time? He was, he was trying to do all these works so that he could be forgiven by God. He would, uh, he would fast for days. He would, uh, he would try to remember and confess every sin he had ever committed and verbally confess it before God. And then he would fall asleep in exhaustion, waking up realizing he had forgotten something. And then he began to study Galatians, and he began to study Romans, and he began to study that the righteous shall live by faith, faith in Christ, who was the sin bearer. It's not on me. It's on. He hated God, and he was a Catholic priest because he knew he couldn't do enough penance. He couldn't do enough atonement. He couldn't remember enough sins to be forgiven. But then one day the light went on. His eyes were open. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. God opened his eyes. He saw the truth that it was put on Jesus. And he was set free. He was set free. And he posted the 95 theses against the, uh, uh, the heretics of, of Tetzel, who was selling indulgences for the Catholic Church to build the cathedrals. Oh, you got people in uh, purgatory? Well, number one, there is no purgatory. There, it's not in the Bible. You know, it's interesting, when Catholic folks start reading their Bible, interesting things happen. My first church in California was comprised of people, 60% of them, pretty much by our count, had Roman Catholic backgrounds. And you give a Roman Catholic individual, they come to know Jesus, and they start reading their Bible, and it gets really interesting real quick. 
well, I don't see purgatory in here. Where's the purgatory? It's not in there. Well, uh, but I did all this stuff for purgatory. And Tetzel would sell indulgences. So your relatives or your friends that were in purgatory, kind of in limbo land, you know, kind of in the big waiting room, there is no waiting room. Well, if you give this much money, you will have their sins forgiven, and then they will go to heaven. And that was how they raised money for a lot of the big, huge cathedrals. Martin Luther, when he realized the gospel, he said, that's blasphemy, put the 95 theses, and suddenly he's number one on the most wanted list. And he thought he was going to be burned at the stake and drawn and quartered, and God delivered him. Now, others were burned at the stake. John Huss was burned at the stake. Why? Why were they against him? Because he stood for the gospel. He sought and he declared it. So whether it's, uh, whatever it is, it can be communion, it can be, someone can be baptized. Uh, Christianity is the heart, and you shall love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6, with all your heart. God looks at the heart. Uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he said in Psalm 51, create in me a new heart. You don't know anybody's heart. You only know your heart. The reason that God looked at Abel's sacrifice and said it was better than Cain's was the heart. God's always looking at the heart. You can't fake God. You can't con God. You can't spin God. He knows the heart. See, this is why back in Hebrews 11, and listen, here's the thing. A broken and contrite spirit he does not despise. When God sees a broken man with a broken heart. Thomas Watson used to say about repentance. Thomas Watson said, because we sin. Thomas Watson said repentance is the vomiting of the soul. There's two kinds of repentance. There's authentic repentance and there's counterfeit. We've seen a lot of counterfeit repentance in our day. Some politician will get caught doing something, he'll deny something, and then he gets caught in the evidence, and you know. So now they're sorry. But somehow you get the sense, I'm not sure this guy's really sorry. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You ever had somebody repent, but it didn't quite have the ring of truth? Why is that? Because you don't, you don't get the sense their heart's in it. It's just external. It's just, they're sorry they got caught. They're not sorry for sin. Repentance is the vomiting of the soul. When someone is truly repentant and sorry, there is a godly sorrow that comes with godly repentance. God looks at our heart. When we're truly repentant over our sin and sad and sick over what we've done, God sees the heart. He sees it. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. You've thrown it all up and there's nothing on your stomach, but you just, you keep going. That is horrific. Oh, that's repentance. It's not a fake, it, it's from the gut. You see some athlete paid a lot of money and the guy's running his route and he kind of halfway runs it and stops and, you know, he's on Twitter or something, you know. You kind of get the sense his heart isn't in it. See, it's always about the heart, isn't it? God looks at the heart. The reason that Abel's sacrifice was better is that Cain's heart wasn't in it. And if you read the story in Genesis, when God calls him on it, he gets angry at God and goes after God and disputes with God. Let me tell you something. When God says something to you, you better shut your mouth and fall on your face. You don't contend with God, and shortly thereafter, he murders his brother, which fits Matthew chapter 12, because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you go back to Hebrews 11, and it talks about Abel having a better sacrifice. And it says this, it says this about Abel, because Abel's heart was in a sacrifice. 
He trusted in the one. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they knew those sacrifices weren't going to save them, but those sacrifices pointed to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who would one day come. If you look at Hebrews, back at Hebrews 11, when we talk about, in verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, now watch this, though he is dead, he still speaks. The, the life of Abel that he offered his sacrifice by faith, with his heart, he was trusting in God to forgive him, not in the sacrifice, he still speaks. So Saturday afternoon, I think it was Saturday afternoon, it was Sunday afternoon, I get an email from a guy that goes to this study, from Mark. He's sitting right here. He's so sad that Mark's got a flight school, and his chief pilot was taken off with a guy, and they lost power and got up about 200 feet and crashed. And uh, they, both gentlemen were killed. And Mark and I, we lived pretty close to each other, and we got together the next day and talked. And uh, I said, tell me about this gentleman, this chief pilot. And he began to tell me about Charlie Yates. And I didn't know Charlie. And Mark said, he said, you know, they're going to have a funeral at his church, but we're going to have something just at our fly, in our hangar tomorrow. Would you be free to come over and we're going to have a little memorial service? Maybe pray with us? And I said, yeah, I can come over. So I went over to this flight school, 10 o'clock Monday morning, and, and everybody, and there are a lot of people. There's these little, what do you call those Piper Cubs? What are those things? Yeah, I don't know what they are. Volkswagens with wings. I don't know what they are. <laughs> All these neat little airplanes in that hangar. And then you got about, I don't know, 100 people, 120 people just standing in the hangar to remember Charlie Yates. And I got up, Mark opened it up, and he handed it to me, and I said, I'm a little out of place here because every one of you in this room knew Charlie. I never met Charlie. But Mark was under my Bible study, and we, he asked me to come and be a part of this. And I read the little obituary that Mark put together. I said, I mean, he identified with Charlie because we're the same age. He had a family. Marriage, kids, the whole thing. I shared some of the gospel, which I knew that Charlie believed. And it was very interesting, because then we gave an opportunity to different people to get up and talk about Charlie's life. I'm going to tell you what was interesting. So I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm sitting where I'm standing. There's no place to sit. I'm standing there, and one by one, people get up. And I'll tell you, I didn't know this man, Charlie Yates. But I'm going to tell you something. As each person got up and talked about this man and talked about his life, and talked about his love of Christ, and talked about he had, how he had influenced them and his example, the first thing Mark did was introduce me to his son. Young guy in his 30s, sharp guy. I said, how are you getting along? He said, I'm so-so. He said, my dad's doing a lot better than I am. I said, he is, isn't he? He says, yeah. He said, but my dad prepared me for this day. That is, a, that is a staggering statement. My dad prepared me for the day that my dad would die. Because my dad knew the Lord. And see, and I know where my dad is. Did he miss his dad? Well, yeah, they're in shock. He loved his dad. He knows where his dad is. And then people, one by one, started to share. And i got to tell you something. I was moved and I was touched. And I thought of this passage as I heard these different folks talk about Charlie Yates. That even though he is dead, he still speaks. He was speaking through the lives of us. One little gal got up. Mark, I think she was a waitress over at the uh, restaurant across. She got up with her Bible, a little sweet gal, and she said... Something along the fact that I never had a, a real good relationship with my father. But Charlie was sweet to me and kind to me. 
And Charlie became a father to me. A little waitress. Just how he treated another lady got up and she said, I came over here to get flight lessons. And it's pretty much all guys over here. Just kind of a good old boy thing. And I walked in here and I was a little uncomfortable. And Charlie was my instructor. And she said, you know what Charlie did? He treated me like a lady. And she kind of teared up. And there were some unbelievers that got up. Obviously guys that didn't know the Lord. And the most broken person I saw there, I would assume really didn't know the Lord, but he was so touched by the power of Charlie's life, he could hardly hold it together. He was a very sharp individual. He was crushed. He's sorting things out. And he spoke of Charlie in such glowing terms. I mean, one by one by one by one. And I thought, you know what? This, this Charlie H. guy, he's a Hebrews 11 guy. I'm watching Hebrews 11 right here in this aircraft hangar this morning. Even though he's dead, he's still speaking through his life. One day you're going to have a memorial service. And I am too. Mine's next Tuesday. <laughs> what are they going to say? It's all the heart. Oh, was this guy without sin? Was this guy the perfect father? Was this guy the perfect? No, no, you know he wasn't, just like you're not and I'm not. But he knew Christ. And he trusted in Christ. And he lived well and he finished strong. You guys still with me? Can you go eight more minutes? What are you going to say, no? <laughs> all right, I got eight minutes. I can't believe I got eight minutes, but I've got eight minutes. Oh, that's because I forgot this. That's why I've got eight minutes. Just to drive the point home, it's always about the heart. Years ago, 25 years ago, I'm pastoring a church in California. And a guy shows up one Sunday with his wife and four kids. And sharp guy, talk with him just briefly after the service. Hey, we're interested in getting to know you and the church and all that. We just moved here from out of state. I said, what are you doing? He had had a, he was an exec with some Fortune 500 outfit. Pretty sharp cookie. Whatever his position was, you could tell this guy, this, this guy was a competent and capable guy. Um, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I took a job with this Christian ministry. I said, really? Not a large ministry, it was a school. And he had walked away from that and taken this position and obviously taken a huge pay cut. Anyway, invited me to lunch. A couple weeks later, we're having lunch, getting to know the guy. And as we're driving back to his office, um, I'm driving in this old van and he's sitting next to me. And one of us mentioned a book on marriage. And he said, isn't that a great book? I said, I've read it. It is a great book. He said, you know that one chapter? I said, yeah, that's dynamite. And he goes, yeah, that's been, he said, I'm actually studying that book uh, with a friend. It's helped both of us tremendously. I said, that's great. He says, yeah, it's really helped me in my relationship with my wife, and it's helped my friend in her relationship with her husband. <laughs> and kind of a little red dot went off on my dashboard. Because <laughs> I had assumed, I had assumed he's studying this book on marriage with another guy but it's with a woman. I have a real um, sophisticated approach to counseling. Uh, if I see a scab, I pick it. <laughs> until you get blood. And there's, there was something wrong here. There was something wrong. And I said to the guy, I said, can I ask you a personal question? He goes, yeah. They always, they always say yeah. <laughs> I've never had anybody say, oh, no, you can't. So I said, can I ask you a personal question? He goes, yeah. And I said, so this book on marriage, you're studying with uh, a gal. He goes, yeah. I said, how long have you guys been studying the book together? He said, oh, you know, maybe three months. I said, have you kissed her yet? He said, what? He said, you're coming on pretty strong. I said, well, you said I could ask a personal question. <laughs> and I'm asking it because I think it'd be pretty difficult to meet with another woman 
and discuss intimate issues about marriage and not get romantically involved with her. I mean, he was mad. He goes, who do you think you are? He said, you have no right. I said, well, actually, I do have a right because you've approached me about getting involved in our church. So I've got every right. But you haven't, asked the que- you haven't answered the question. And I think I know the answer. I think you have kissed her. And I'll tell you what else. I'm no prophet. I'm a son of a prophet. But I'll bet you this, in 90 days, you'll be in bed with that woman. And I'll never forget, he's in that passenger seat, and he, uh, he looked at me, and here's the motion. He said, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. That'll never happen. And it did happen. I think six weeks later, he left his wife and four kids. She left her husband and three or four kids. And they went off to Disneyland in the Magic Kingdom or whatever they did. Viagra Land. I don't know what they did. It was, it was, it was tragic. Tragic. Eight kids destroyed. Two spouses destroyed. And if you looked at this guy, here's what you would think. Here's a guy, walked away from all the money, Fortune 500, came into this ministry, da-da-da-da-da. What a great sacrifice. But there was no heart of obedience to Christ. Was there? It was a sham. It was fraud. I don't know anybody else's heart. All I can do is watch over my own heart, as Proverbs 4 says. Guard your heart, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. God looks at the heart. That's why Abel's sacrifice was better. Here's the second word. So, so we talked about faith in the heart. Here's the other one, events in the heart. The next guy that's mentioned, now that I've got three minutes, the next guy that is mentioned is Enoch. You know anything about Enoch? It says here in Hebrews 11... Just a brief thing on this guy. Verse 5, it says this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Enoch did not die. God took him directly to heaven. The other person that happened to in the Old Testament was Elijah. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Enoch was a man who was walking by faith. And apparently, God had given him some indication, some word, Old Testament-wise, that he would be taken up, and he walked by faith, trusting in God. Flip back real quick to Genesis chapter 5, and I want to show you how that came about in this guy's life, because you're going to identify with it. It says in Genesis 5, it gives the genealogy in verse 21, and this is back when these men, this was before the flood. This was when these men lived hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, 900 years, 800 years. It says in verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. No one ever lived longer than Methuselah. Okay? He had the longest lifespan of anyone in the history of the world. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Watch this. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. Now let's stop right there. Here's my point. For 65 years, Enoch did not walk with God. For 65 years, he was not a man of faith. But you see, the sovereign God uses certain events in our lives that bring us to faith. They get our attention, they stun us, they stagger us, they teach us. What happened here? What does this say? It says, then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. When that boy was born into his home, it was an event that changed his life. Radically. When you came to Christ... There is some kind of event that God used to radically change your perspective, to radically get your attention. With this guy, it was the birth of a little boy. I remember being in that uh, delivery room with Mary when Rachel was born. That was the most, all of a sudden, I see this little, I see this little, we've been in there for nine weeks. I see, it seemed like it, and I wasn't in pain. 
But finally, I see this little, and the doctor says, there's the head. I go, there's the head. And then all of a sudden, I'm holding this little tiny girl. This is the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I got this little granddaughter, Madeline Grace. I love her to death. You know who loves her more than I do? Her daddy. Every court, court walks around, he'll come over to the house, and he just walk, he was we were having dinner the other night, he, he's walking around, he just looks at her. He just looks at her. He just looks at her. That little girl has got his heart. That sucker's toast from here on out. <laughs> and that's how it ought to be. Isn't that sweet? This is a miracle. That little boy was born to Enoch, and from that day on, Enoch walked with God. Let me ask you something. Sometimes it's a positive event. Sometimes it's a negative event. Sometimes it's the thrill. Sometimes it's the pit. But God sovereignly uses the events in our lives to shake us, to stun us, to shock us, and to get our attention. And as a result, that event, whatever it may be, that event is that which brings us to Him and makes us focus on Him and opens our eyes and makes us different. He wasted His life for 65 years and then God intervened with an event. That's what God does. That's what He does. And it's different. It's a different event for everybody. I'm always amazed every time I see Paul out here. Because Paul came to really know the Lord through his buddy that was in this study for a long, long time, a fellow medical doctor. He came to know the Lord through his buddy Paul when Paul got Lou Gehrig's disease. And what happened is, as Paul you know, this thing hit him, and Paul was a bodybuilder and a pilot and a guy that loved his daughters and his wife and just a guy full of life. And Paul starts going down. And what Paul can, I remember we do this study up in that upstairs room. And these guys would bring in Paul in a wheelchair and they'd carry him upstairs because there's no elevator in that wheelchair. And Paul could still barely talk. And one of the things he did was that Paul, uh, King was a neighbor as well as a fellow doctor. And King had said to him, he said, hey, Paul, you let me know anything I can do, anything. Because you can't do the things you used to. So Paul called him up, talked to him, said, hey, would you take me to Bible study? And I loved it when King told me the story at Paul's funeral service. I didn't know the story. And uh, well, King said, well, yeah. King told me, King told me that kind of freaked me out because I, I, I didn't go to Bible study. And uh, Paul asked me to take him to Bible study. He said, well, what am I going to do? Did I just drop you off? He goes, no, you come in with me. He said, oh, okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, what Paul did was Paul focused on about four or five different guys and asked him to bring them to Bible study. He had about five guys that bring him to Bible study. <laughs> Paul hadn't lost his uh, head. He knew what he was doing. And I remember King telling me, he said, so I'd never been to Bible study, so I went out in Barnes & Noble. I thought, I better buy a Bible. And uh, I walked in there. I couldn't believe how many Bibles there were. And I'm looking and looking. He said, there are all kinds of Bibles. I didn't know which one to get. So I saw one that said, New American Standard. And, and King said, I said, well, I'm an American, and uh, I'll get that one. Which just happened to be the one I teach out of, and Chuck teaches out of. And so King started coming to the Bible study and sitting there with Paul and faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What brought King? Lou Gehrig's disease in Paul's life. Oh, where's Paul? Be absent from the body. Just be present with the Lord. Even though he is dead, he still speaks. And there are a lot of guys in here that would talk about the effect that Paul's life, walking by faith, even when he couldn't speak, even when he couldn't move. Hall of Fame, because he walked by faith. We're still running the race, guys. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father.
that you oversee the events of our lives. You work so strangely in our lives. It's amazing. There, would it not be great to hear each guy tell his story of how he came to know you? There's an event there somewhere. There's an event. I've known guys who have come to you because of the loss of a child. I know guys that have come to you who lost the use of their legs. Other guys, we come to you, Lord, Chuck Colson came to you because he was at the pinnacle of power in the White House and he was losing the power and he was going to prison. And one night, a, a businessman he respected shared the gospel with him. Chuck Colson thought he was losing his life. What he didn't realize were your words at the time that if a man's going to find his life, he must lose it. And you took away the life that he had and gave him new life in Christ. And how many men were affected in prisons because he went to prison? You work so strangely in our lives, but you work. And we don't always understand. We don't always get because it doesn't go according to our plan and we get fearful. And we don't know how it's going to work. And we don't know, are you going to keep it going? Are you going to sustain us? How am I going to make it next week? Or what if this doesn't come through? We, and, and so we got to fight off the fear, but we fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on you and trust you and your word and your promises, you're pleased. We want to please you simply by trusting in you alone. In his name we pray.